1: Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnar Blog. James, good morning to you. Good morning to you too, Andrew. How are you doing today? I am okay. We've just spent a couple of minutes looking over these kind of extraordinary charges that have been levelled at Manchester City. Mm-hmm. Alleged breaches of Premier League rules, and they're many and varied, and many and many. There's lots of them. Um... I just noticed on the Discord that we had a question from Tom Clark who said, in light of the news about Man City breaking, would you rather they get a points deduction, which all but seals a title but with an asterisk, or play on and try winning it properly with the risk of losing it? And can I just go asterisk, 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 asterisk all the way? Give me all the asterisks, relegate these fuckers, and let's have a party. That's my thinking.
2: I think they should be stripped of all their former titles and they should also be awarded to Arsenal. That seems to me... Alphabetical you know, order.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, should be done. exactly. AFC uh,
2: well, we've got to get them someone get in here who's late. top now. Those guys. Yeah, that's it. That's it. This is genuinely extraordinary and mm. um, completely unprecedented, I think. I don't think I've, I can recall anything quite
1: like this. Apart from Manchester City, and UEFA maybe getting, uh, you know, th- those charges where, you know, they were similar-ish, weren't they, in terms of um, FFP or whatever way those charges were leveled. They uh, And they're very expensive, and um, accomplished legal team managed to get around those. But these are, you know, these are, it, it is unprecedented. I can't rem- remember ever seeing anything like this. And the sort of, not just the occasional infraction but basically what they're looking at here is season after season after season of providing wrong information or not providing the right information uh, which would see them abide by um all kinds of premier league rules ffp rules um remuneration for the managers remuneration for the players um uh, what what else am i trying to say here the sort of um revenues and sponsorships and all yeah. of those kinds of things that every other club in the Premier League has to abide by. You know, let's let's um, make that very clear, that these are rules that every club in the Premier League must abide by. And Manchester City, if the Premier League's investigation, a four-year investigation is to be believed, have spent years and years and years not doing that. No, it is and, incredible.
2: And seemingly not complying with the Premier League's investigation into it either, which I think yeah. is adds another layer to the charges. Wow. Um, I mean, I guess what's fascinating is this is probably one of the biggest stories uh, in Premier League recent history. And yet I'd be staggered if you found a single person who was surprised.
1: I I guess that's true. And you might also find it difficult to find someone who thinks anything material might happen because of this.
2: Oh, there'll be a healthy cynicism about that. No doubt. Yeah. You know, clubs come under fire for all kinds of sanctions and all kinds of wrongdoing. Mm. Um, and if they've got enough money and good enough lawyers, yeah, they can wriggle out of it. But... You know, obviously we're on the outside looking at it, but what's been happening at Manchester City, it's been pretty clear to most of us, has looked like a case of, you know, financial doping, or it hasn't looked necessarily uh, right. And, you know, the degree to which their spending has inflated relative to their revenue has felt somewhat Mm. doctored. And these accusations Uh, or these alleged breaches of the rules would appear to suggest that that kind of instinctive feeling about it is correct.
1: Um, Yeah.
2: I mean, it's a long way from here to them actually receiving a punishment. Who knows what kind of punishment that would be, but it's the Premier League themselves who are bringing these charges. So (laughs) effectively uh, the competition and the the 19 other clubs, you could say really are... um, you know our, 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 our sort of party to this, so yeah. I, I think it'll be fascinating to see because the Premier League is a pretty powerful um, entity, maybe more so than even like the FA. Um,
1: mm. I mean, the thing about it is, if 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 these things are proven, the Premier League in its way is kind of tainted if it's not already. You know what I mean? I think people have looked at certain clubs and the way that they've spent money down the years and said, look, you know, this is, yeah, you you don't need me to give you the ins and outs of, of all that. But if a club that has won the Premier League on numerous occasions while being in breach of Premier League rules, I do wonder... How they can react to that in a way that doesn't uh, sort of tarnish the product or the brand, if you know what I mean. I think there's, yeah, that's a really interesting aspect to this, too. So, well,
2: well think of Serie A and uh, Juventus, a very different uh, case of rule breaking with the Calciopoli scandal. Mm. But, you know, that was historic and saw Juventus stripped of titles and relegated. Relegated, yeah. Um, and I think did seriously undermine the credibility of that competition uh, on a sort of continental global scale. Yeah. I think it really was damaging to the brand of Syria. And you're right. These are alleged breaches over a period of nine years, effectively a decade.
1: Um, During which they've been the most successful club at Premier League level. Yeah. I
2: mean, Penny, for the thoughts of Liverpool fans right now, who... You know, have been uh, a pretty remarkable team throughout most of that period, and uh, Mm. experienced relatively little success in the Premier League on account of Manchester City's dominance. It must be very galling to see these
1: accusations levelled today, Mm. and what they potentially mean. Um, A touch of a touch of um, Arsene Wenger's Monaco to the Marseille team. Um, You know that whole thing back in the day. With yeah, I, I mean, it's like- not the same. I'm not saying there's match fixing, but, you know, one club appeared to uh, be successful through um, nefarious means.
2: Uh, yeah, and I think the ways of getting round rules <laughs> have become more sophisticated. And I think what we're seeing here is allegations of some quite sophisticated ways of cheating, effectively. Mm. Um, allegations that, you know as far as I understand it, have to go to an independent commission now. Um, so here you go. Yes. They've, they've, they've. It's been referred to a commission. Commissions are independent of the Premier League and member clubs. Uh, members of the commission will be appointed by the independent chair of the Premier League judicial panel. Hmm. Um, and the proceedings before the commission will, in accordance with Premier League rules, be confidential and heard in private. But the Premier League's commission's final award will be published on the premier league's website i mean we're we talking about nine years mm. of, of potential breaches it could be quite some time you would imagine
1: before any conclusions are arrived at yeah i mean yeah it's very difficult to put a time frame on that because you know at the time of recording um you know we're here it's a coming up to 10 to 11, there hasn't been a a statement from Manchester City as of yet, in which you would imagine that they will um, plead innocence, I guess. And, um, you know, those legal battles between very expensive lawyers and the Premier League's lawyers are going to be, I'd say, treacherous. I'd say this is going to be something that gets dragged out and dragged out. I wouldn't expect, like, next week for there to be um, sort of uh, an announcement on what the punishment is going to be. So this could well play out for for weeks and months ahead. So as exciting as the prospect of them being relegated to League 2 is, um, we might have to assume for now that it's not going to happen straight away. No, I don't think so. And I think in the short term, the only
2: points deduction I'm really thinking about is the three points of the Emirates Stadium next week. Um Yeah. It's an it's a, <laughs> a tantalising prospect for Arsenal fans, the idea that City's punishment could come into effect in time to mm. you know play some part in the outcome of this season. But I, I don't know how realistic that yeah. is. You know, you would imagine this is going to take some serious time and, and City would do everything in their power to kind of dig Fight. their heels in and yeah. make this protracted and difficult for sure
1: they will fight this um very
2: hard no because you know it's not just the premier league's brand or indeed the club's brand here when you're backed by a nation state the perception of that nation state is in part at stake Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but as i understand it they have a few quid to hire good lawyers they might (laughs) so They, yeah, I feel they might think that's worth an investment at this particular time.
1: Yeah, it won't be. It won't be Lionel Hutt's attorney at law for Manchester City, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, uh, yeah, so okay. I mean, it, it's sort of it's
2: sensational, but uh, speaking with this with this proximity to it, it's so difficult to know how it might turn yeah. out. What, what we can say is, it's not been a great thirty-six hours or so. For Manchester City.
1: No, that's true. And, you know, has it hasn't been a great 48 hours or so for Arsenal, but they were made better by what happened at White Hart Lane. We had a lot of questions from people going, How do I cleanse myself from what I did on Sunday after Arsenal lost and Spurs were playing Manchester City? Everyone is die hard. We all know what the rivalry is, but there were people and I understand why, actively rooting for a Tottenham win in this particular game. And they want to know, how do, they, how do they make it better? How do they make themselves feel better? Can they baptize themselves in the river of Arsenal again uh, in a way that uh, you know, makes them clean, makes them feel clean on the inside and the outside? Any advice?
2: I don't know beyond you know a cold shower really. I mean, <laughs> it, I, I, I sort of uh, partly through circumstance and per, partly by choice sort of didn't watch mm. the vast majority of this game. I got home uh, sort of in the eighty seventh minute. Ah. And I, I confess, I did turn it on for those final few moments. Yeah, because I uh, there was a scary you- moment actually where I turned it on, and I was, I'd been watching it for about two minutes, and. Uh, Then one of the commentators suddenly referenced Tottenham being down to 10 men. And I had no idea that was the case, which (laughs) added a a little sort of injection of adrenaline to that stoppage time period. Did you watch it?
1: I I watched the last half hour or so. You know me, I don't usually watch them if I can help it. But it was sort of on and I was having a beer and, you know, it was quite funny. I mean, they spent as as much time kicking Jack Grealish as they did kicking the football. Sure. but that's who they are and that's what they do. And I have to say it was a very confusing, it was a very confusing period in my life, short period, but you you have every bone in your body is going, I want Tottenham to get beaten to a pulp Mm -hmm. here because Tottenham are playing and I want them to lose. And that's just the way it goes. But then you're like, well, no, actually this would be a very good result for us. Um, So it was a little bit confusing, a little bit strange and, um, not nice, but I think it got us out of jail a little bit after what happened at Goodison Park. So on that basis, we have to be thankful that, um, they did get the win. Imagine, imagine if that Harry Kane goal was the difference between the title and well, he'd the be delighted, target. of course. He as would, a boyhood Arsenal fan, he would be absolutely ecstatic.
2: Um, I, I think that I was sort of fully on board with the let's come on, let's hope Spurs win here. And the reason being is that the Spurs fans I knew and that I spoke to before were kind of almost equivocal about whether or not they wanted to win because they were worried about what it might mean for Arsenal and the Premier League title. <laughs> so. The satisfaction of Manchester City dropping the points, but Spurs also not wholly being able to enjoy it and revel in it because there's this nagging feeling of, yeah, but we've done Arsenal a favour. I think that's kind of a Mm. win-win. And it is a massive result. You know, I have to say, on paper, this was always one of City's tougher games. And they, you know, we have a problem at Goodison Park, but they have a problem at Tottenham. I mean, their their record at that ground is really poor.
1: It's ridiculous. There's no reasonable explanation for why Manchester City in their last five games there haven't scored a goal, haven't won a game. They've lost all five. It's just, it's ridiculous that a team like that.
2: Produces these things. And I do think there are sort of tactical elements to Spurs that maybe make them an awkward fit for a side like Manchester City. Um, Our own record at that ground until this season had been Mm. not particularly good, but yeah, I think it's a big result because it just changes the complexion of the entire weekend. I'm sure all Arsenal fans were feeling pretty down after Saturday, and we'll come on to that. But it presented City with this opportunity to really close the gap yeah. and really crank up the pressure. And I think that not taking that, it f- will feel massive to them actually I know that they I think they had the harder game of the two clubs this weekend Um, but seeing us lose first and having the opportunity to then Mm. close that gap and not doing it to me it feels significant
1: yeah I did see some questions people saying like do you feel differently about our result at Goodison Park in the light of City's defeat like do you feel like we missed an opportunity to go eight points clear with a game in hand. And like I do, obviously, but primarily I think I feel a sense of relief because there were always going to be moments in this season. There were always going to be games or a game or two that did not go our way despite our best efforts. And when that happened, if Manchester City were to slip up at the same time, then it kind of gets you out of jail a little bit, you know? So... I think I can view it in that context, particularly pa- pa- particularly, as we played first, you know. I think if it had been a case that City had lost on the Saturday and we were going to Goodison Park with the chance to go eight points clear and we lost, I think it would feel a lot worse.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that you can't quite separate the two mm. because obviously Arsenal lost and that meant there was uh, – you know, this opportunity for City and with that a certain degree of pressure. And it's, I think, impossible to unpick how the Arsenal result might have impacted upon the Manchester City mm. performance. I I, do, I might be wrong about this and I've not actually sort of looked properly, but it felt like this was one of the first weekends in a while where we played first. Um, mm. I feel like there's been quite a lot recently of like us knowing the City result and having that degree of uh, pressure or expectation or need to go and get a result. And more times than not, we have done it. Mm. Um, and the shoe was on the other foot this time around. And I think, yeah, I think they'll be pretty disappointed that that they they'll see this as weekend as a, an opportunity miss. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's more of an opportunity miss for them than it than it is for us, if that makes sense.
1: It does, it does. So look, let's talk about our game. <laughs> Eventually we've got around to our game at, at Goodison Park. But to be fair, there's been a bit going on this weekend and a bit going on this morning. Um, so 2017, uh, since we won there, new manager bounce, 12.30 kickoff, ingredients were there for a, for a shock result, if you want to call it a shock result. But I have to say I was confident going into this game because we've got a pretty good record against Sean Dyche. We've got a pretty good record against Everton generally. I know we, we've lost a couple of times, but they've been tight games and games that we probably should have got more out of than we did. Um, I am fuming that we didn't get to play Lampard's Everton at all this season. I think that's unfair. I think that should be a breach of Premier League rules as well. Yeah, we should Um, be awarded points because of that. Exactly, exactly. But the team, Mikel Arteta picked, was pretty much as expected. Thomas Partey was fit to start. We might talk a bit about whether he was fit to do 90 minutes or not. Um, That's another question. But Everton, obviously, with a new manager, they're up for it. They're making life difficult for you. They are going to work hard. And um, whatever you might say about Sean Dyche, I think he's a—you know—he's uh, not Frank Lampard, I should say. In, in that, he can organize a football team and he can get players organized and and transmit to them what he would like them to do on the pitch. And I think you could mm-hmm. see from very early on what Everton were going to do, how they were going to do it. Um, but none of that should have been unexpected to Arsenal. None of that should have been a surprise. I think that would have been very much part of the preparation, you know, to talk about those those factors and what Everton were going to do and how they were going to try and stop us.
2: No, you're right. Arsenal would have absolutely known what they were getting into. Um, and it, 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 to me, this was a day where Arsenal, it, things weren't really happening for them and Everton were... Definitely energised by a new manager and a reinvigorated crowd. And as I watched it play out, I sort of thought, this is a game you just need to escape from. Like, this is a game where if you can get away with a point and just sort of be like, well, we survived, then uh, that would have been fine. Mm. But, you know, obviously we didn't even manage that on the day. And I think, you know, we conceded a goal from a set piece. That's obviously a, a strength of... Sean Deich, particularly, and Everton are a big side. But I think really the issue was that Arsenal didn't get their own attacking game going. And, you know, Deich set up with a, a very uh, aggressive uh, midfield three who were pressing hard, running hard. It was probably the first time this season that I've seen a team actually cope with the Arsenal midfield. You know, the Zinchenko trick of turning a three into a four and giving us the overload and the extra numbers. I thought Everton, with the very narrow uh, sort of team, mm. dealt with that actually as well as anybody has. And admittedly, part of that is on Arsenal for our own game not firing well enough. But, they, you know, they clearly looked where we're strong and, and sought to counter that.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um I had some concerns early on. I saw the pitch and was like, "Ooh, that pitch doesn't look very good." And I'm not blaming the pitch in any way, but I think part of um, part of our problem on the day was the speed with which we moved the ball. Hundred
2: percent, and that that was my observation in the ground as well. You right. can see. It cutting up, you know, especially uh, in the wide areas, I could see there was areas of the pitch that weren't brilliant. Again, that's not an excuse. It's the same for both teams. Mm. But I do think it's more of a hindrance to the way Arsenal sought to play the game than the way Everton did. Um, And I think you're right, absolutely right about the speed of the ball, particularly moving across the pitch. Uh, You know, there were times in this game where Something we did was really stick Bukayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli out wide and they Mm. were quite close to the touchline. And often they were in quite a lot of space and Arsenal would sort of move the ball up one flank and something we'd do really well usually is transition very quickly to the other flank and suddenly we've isolated a winger in a one-on-one position on the opposite side of the pitch. It just was taking too long to get the ball out there, um, partly because it was very congested due to what Everton were doing with a midfield three and a striker dropping in, you know, busy and up the middle of the pitch also Mm. because of the surface because our passing game just wasn't quite right you know eventually we resorted to trying like quite long diagonals which were a bit more successful yeah
1: a couple of those worked I think you know Zinchenko to Saka a few times worked quite well because it did find him in space um but yeah on on the other side it seemed whenever Martinelli got the ball he was immediately um closed down by two players because it took so long to get the ball Mm. out there
2: because I was in the Uh, press box looking down and we were all commenting on the fact that Martinelli was just in acres of space so much of the time. He was clearly the outball. And I think, you know, Seamus Coleman did well on the day, but if you get Martinelli into enough one-on-one duels with Coleman, I think eventually he's going to succeed. I just don't think we got him the supply early enough um, for him to really exploit the space that was there. So, you know, that was one of the issues. I I also felt that... um, maybe more so than on any occasion thus far. This was a day where Arsenal missed Gabriel Jesus. Yes. Did you feel that?
1: Yes. I mean, this is not to be in any way critical of Eddie Kedia because he had a couple of good moments in this game. Um, but I think in a game like this, in these kind of circumstances, when collectively you're not at your best, you are then immediately reliant on individuals producing moments or doing something that changes the dynamic or the momentum of a game right Mm -hmm. so what we did for too much of this game was to hit the ball or get the ball to our wide players and hope they could beat a couple of players and then find a pass or make a shot or make a cross or whatever it might be so we're looking for the inspiration from uh from the wide players. I think in a game like this, what Gabriel Jesus gives you those flashes, those, those, he gives the central defenders something different to think about than Eddie and you know, and, and there's a sliding doors moment in this game, which we'll come to obviously, um, which is when Nkedia does really, really well to set up a great chance for Martin Odegaard who mm. blasts over. And, and like a couple of minutes later, Everton go ahead when, probably we should have been one nil up. But I think what, what Jesus gives you as a team is probably the closest thing we have to the kind of player who can drag everybody up to a different level on a day when it's not quite working. And that's a lot of responsibility to put on him and and to suggest that, you know, if we had him, it would have been completely different, but even as an option from the bench, um, if you've got Jesus, you can play two strikers. You can maybe th- uh, switch things up a little bit uh, tactically when you've got two strikers, regardless of who starts, whether it's Nketi or Jesus. But I, I think his absence was obvious to me
2: anyway. Yeah, and, and Eddie's done brilliantly, you know, uh, until yeah. this point with Jesus out. I think I agree with you. I think when Arsenal's game is clicking and working, uh, there's a real case that Eddie is the optimum spearhead for that because he's such a predator in the penalty area. But when things aren't quite clicking and when things aren't quite going as well as they might be, Mm. I agree with you that Jesus is someone who can, through individual quality, through the work rate, through his capacity to drop in and create overloads in central areas, wide areas, I think he can make things happen when things aren't quite going quite so swimmingly. Um, Yeah. And I think Arsenal missed that on the day, um, which is probably no surprise. The weird thing about the first half is that, you know, I think Everton ended the half with three big chances, according to Opta, which is, you know, unprecedented really. I mean, Arsenal very rarely concede, you know, that number of quality opportunities to the opposition. But at the same time, Arsenal might well have had a couple of goals themselves. I mean, I think of the Bukayo Saka shot that was cleared off the line and mm. there was one where Eddie, you know, turned quite nicely in the box but then just went for power and, and blasted it. Yeah, he it, it uh, picked the hard-wise. wrong
1: decision there, didn't he? He went I think he was trying to blast it in at the near post but he should have gone across the goalkeeper. Um, mm. You know, even if Pickford sticks out of hand or whatever, it might deflect into the path of somebody else. It has to be the most perfectly precise shot to beat the keeper at the near post whereas. You not that you get two bites of the cherry if you like, but if you do go across and a you know player blocks it or the keeper makes a save, then there is the possibility that somebody else is going to be in the box to put that in. So there were there were a couple of moments. I think the the control on that sack of volley, when you consider the height of the ball that came to him, yeah. um, was really superb. I think it was Cody Connor Cody who cleared it off the line, but I texted you at the you know halftime to say we were kind of lucky to be level because. Definitely were the Onana burst down the left hand side, and the cross in. I think Calvert Lewin, I think he got the tiniest touch on it. It it only would have taken a tiny touch from that distance for that to be a goal. There was a free header for De and there was a a really good header from Calvert Lewin as well, uh, which went went just wide. I thought that was a really interesting part of the game was the battle between Gabrielle and Calvert Lewin. Yeah, I I, I mean, it was pretty even. I think Gabrielle did really well against him, but I, I I sort of enjoyed it in a in a throwback kind of a way because you don't necessarily associate Calvert Lewin as being like a big strong target man kind of guy, but he is. You know, he uses his body really well. He's very good in the air. You know, he can hold it up well with his back to goal. I thought that was um, you know for all the disappointment in the result, I just thought that was an in, uh, an interesting little part of the game. <laughs>
2: It was. And, and uh, I mean, maybe people don't more well, generally, but I, I do think of Calvert-Lewin as being someone who's brilliant in the air. I think athletically, there are very few who can match him in terms of you know the leap and, and the ability he has to head the ball, the technical aspect as well. Mm. I thought Gabriel did pretty well. I mean, I think on the day, there's probably a shout, Gabriel was Arsenal's best player or one of them. Um, it was a difficult duel. But mm. I thought, although we've mentioned a couple of chances Calvert-Lewin had, I thought by and large he coped pretty admirably with it. But it was very physical, and it was interesting watching it as well. You know, knowing the history of Arsenal's interest in Calvert Lewin, mm. and just thinking, wow, what a different kind of centre forward that might have been, and, and a different direction for the team to go. And it does feel a little like that opportunities maybe passed him by now. He's had a very difficult period since mm. then with injuries and absences, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was interesting to watch. I agree with you.
1: He, I mean, Calvert-Lewin would be exactly the kind of guy you would want on the Arsenal bench on a day like Saturday. Mm. You yeah, know, I- I'm not saying we need the plan B, but that kind of a striker, that kind of presence up front, um, it gives you something different, gives you another option, and look, you know, it's it's uh, neither here nor there at this point. But I, I I do like him, and I think he's a good player, and um, that was that was an interesting bit. So half time I thought, okay, the manager's gonna you know sort this out, get them going again, and immediately Ramsdale had to make a brilliant save, even though the the offside flag went up, um, which didn't particularly augur well. Then again, it was quite even, I think, in terms of chances or certainly um, the way the game was going. Uh, there were moments from Everton. They were looked a little bit dangerous from, from set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have that moment where Odegaard has the chance, blasts over yeah. the bar, and within, what, a minute, 60 seconds, they have a corner and score the goal. Nodegaard, you know, and Tarkovsky uh, are the two players involved there. So it, it sort of reminded me a bit of, of last year when Eddie and Kedia had the chance to put us 2-1 up and then a few minutes later, Everton score the goal. You know, on a day like uh, Saturday, when you're not at your best, those fine margins become even more so, don't they?
2: They do. And I'm not saying it was a straightforward Uh, chance for Odegaard but the form he's in and the form he's been in I would have expected him to do better there yeah Um, I think he would have expected it of himself as well and it did feel like a big moment in the game because it was a a nice move down the left Uh, I think it was maybe Saka and then Nketiah yeah who combined uh, to set Odegaard up and yeah just a bit of a swing at it in the end and then Everton go up the other end and, and score and you know, I was speaking to Adrian Clark about this yesterday. He was saying that they were looking for that corner quite a lot during this game, you know, a big looped one to the back post. Um, his suggestion was that they'd looked at our marking system, mm. which to be fair has coped pretty well for quite a long time now in the Premier League True. and found a, a bit of a loophole there, a bit of a, you know, a flaw in the system with uh, Odegaard as one of the markers at the back post. And it was a pure Burnley goal, a, a Dwight McNeil corner and a a James Tarkovsky
1: header. Yeah. I did say this to you a couple of weeks ago about Odegaard's role at corners where he seems to be very focused on the man um, rather than like, I I don't know that, that Martin Odegaard can beat James Tarkovsky to a header in the box, Mm. but I think he can probably compete for the header, which might make it a bit more difficult for Tarkovsky. And, you know, I'm not going in on Odegaard here at all, but this is something I've noticed from him in the way that he defends in the box, which I assume is how he's being instructed to to defend yeah, in the box, Adrian because was
2: saying that um, he sees it as Arsenal have a hybrid system where they have s- certain zonal markers and certain man markers effectively, mm. and Odegaard I think is one of three uh, man man markers, yeah. yeah, and the zone at that back post is typically occupied by William Saliba. Who defended a couple of those corners very well. Exceptionally well, yeah. And I think if you watch this one again, he's just blocked off by one of the Everton guys. Maybe it's Decore, I'm not quite sure. Mm. But there's a pretty smart piece of play that effectively stops Saliba from backpedalling and cutting that out, which he would ordinarily do and indeed did do very effectively in the first half.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, a frustrating goal to concede. Um, yeah. And but- they didn't really – I mean, I guess it's the nature of
2: it having gone behind. But as far as I recall, they didn't really create anything else in the second half.
1: Not really, because I think once they went to goal up, i, I their, their – Their task was very clear. Their task was different. And so they were going to sit in. They were going to make it difficult. They were going to make it scrappy. they were gonna, They were going to – prevent us from building any kind of rhythm, you know, through fair means or foul. You know, but that's what happens in football. That's the way football teams, particularly football teams that have been struggling down the bottom of the Premier League, if they go 1-0 up on the league leaders, they're not going to say, right, come on, chaps. Let's have a right good go at these and open ourselves up. You know, they're going to sit in. They're going to make it tough. They're going to time waste. They're going to do all the things that you would want your team to do if you were in those circumstances. As tough as it is for us to, to experience that. And I do think maybe we got sucked in a little bit um, towards the end, but we'll, we'll come to that. I suppose what we should say, though, is just before the corner and before the goal, Mikel Arteta made two substitutions. He took Gabriel Martinelli and Thomas Partey off, and he put Leandro Trossard and Jorginho on. Mm-hmm. I mean, Trossard, Martinelli, I-, I get to an extent. I think Martinelli had been finding it difficult for reasons that we've we've discussed, and we might have a bit of a question about that in, in part two. But what did you make of the Partey substitution? Was that tacit admission that he was not a hundred percent for this game and that you know they got to 60 minutes and thought got man city coming up let's not take any risks here with him yeah it's hard to know
2: isn't it because he wouldn't ordinarily take party off in that situation but then no. he's not had uh, a jorginho player who he you know really likes in in that position um I actually called Jorginho coming on at half-time. I thought, I, I'm sure he's going to come off on in this game because I th- thought that Arsenal were just lacking an element of control in, in midfield. I didn't necessarily know or think it would be for Partey, but mm. um, I was surprised a little bit at that. I was, I'll was i be honest, I was actually even more surprised when Martin Odegaard came off later in the game, but I'll, I'll come to that. Um, hard to know at this stage if it was fitness or tactical
1: I mean, I don't think he was at his best, party, but then I think that's true of pretty much everybody. Exactly. So yeah, for, for a player of his importance, though, you know, look, I don't know for sure, but it, it strikes me that this was precautionary to an extent.
2: Perhaps so. I mean, I also think that we can't underestimate uh, how highly the manager rates Jorginho. I think he does, and I think he probably thought he can help us here. It didn't play out like that to mm. my eyes anyway um you know i'm someone who thinks that was a, a pretty sensible signing in the circumstances but admittedly in difficult circumstances it wasn't an auspicious debut i don't think
1: no i don't think so i don't think so but like i don't feel the need to go in on, on no, a, I on mean, a new signing underperformed i think you yeah know? you know on a day when nobody was anywhere near their best you know individually and and collectively we were not we were not on it. No. Uh, I don't think it's, don't think it's reasonable to go in on on Jorginho. Nevertheless, it is a strange substitution because Partey has been such, such an important player for us. Um, what did you
2: think of the Odegaard change? That was about uh, fifteen minutes later, about seventy-seven minutes. <sighs> I was really surprised, just because I thought, I guess, I mean, Odegaard hadn't been great. But I still thought if anything was going to happen, you know, I thought he might be a key part in that.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, he has the creativity. That's the thing. He does have that creativity to, to produce a moment or to produce a chance for somebody else. And did he not score a very late goal? Was it last season? In against Everton, was it a pretty? Uh, he scored goal. to
2: put us ahead in right. the game at Goodison Park. Trying right to remember half-time. a game,
1: there was a game where he took a shot and it deflected up and over and in and somebody. But you know, he's got that that in his locker. I mean, I. What else do you think he could have done to try and mount sufficient pressure on on Everton? Mm. I mean, the.
2: He hasn't he, got another centre-forward. He hasn't got
1: another... Well, he did. He had the young guy on the bench, uh, Cosier Dubery. But we know that often when young players are on the bench for Mikel Arteta, it's because he needs a warm body rather than it being somebody that he's necessarily going to use. I think he's more of a wide player as well. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So, I mean, what else was there available to him, could you have brought on Kieran Tierney for Zinchenko, for example? You know, where yeah. Zinchenko, we know where he likes to play, we know what he gives us, we know what he can do, but maybe on a day when that isn't working, do you do you go a little more industrial, if you like, in inverted commas, and get a fullback who can overlap? Particularly as you've got Tommy Asu for Ben White as well, Tommy Asu is not really the rampaging, overlapping fullback. whereas Tierney can give you some of that. And if you can get some bodies in the box, then maybe that gives you a a different kind of threat.
2: Yeah, I I think that could have been a way to shift the emphasis. I mean, I I can forgive Mikel Arteta sticking with Plan A because Plan A has been pretty darn good so far this season um, and has dug Arsenal out of the holes that they have been in. But I think that could have changed it up and you wouldn't even necessarily have to take Zinchenko off. You could have put Tierney on for Granit Xhaka maybe and switched Zinchenko into midfield. I thought Xhaka had a difficult game. It Mm. was very congested in the middle of the park when he was receiving the ball. He wasn't receiving it in a lot of space. It didn't necessarily play to his strengths. Um, So, you know, I think that's the way you could have done it. Personally, I would have brought Tomiyasu on earlier than he came on. He came on eight yeah. five minutes gone. Think, and I'm, you know, one of big, the biggest Ben White fans out there, but I thought this was a difficult day for him. Um, I thought he struggled a little bit in this match and that on the ball, he didn't have his usual level of security. Mm. Um, so there are little things you could have done. I mean, obviously, you know, as we said earlier on, if you've got a true center forward there and Gabriel Jesus, and you can go to two up top and make life a bit more awkward for them. I mean, he, You know, we talk about Calvert Lewin, but even Gabriel Jesus gives you an option, I think, to be more direct. I remember plenty of occasions in the first half of the season when, you know, he turned a long ball from Ben White or Aaron Ramsdale even into scoring opportunities with his ability to hold the play up. So you don't have to be six foot four to provide a team with an outlet. Um, but, yeah, I, it was one of those games where I was sort of watching it play out. And typically in any match you think, well, there's going to be a chance. You know, there's going to be a moment for Arsenal in this. Mm. And they'll either take it or they won't. But I don't really think that moment ever ever came. There were a couple of long-range shots from Zinchenko. Zinchenko, yeah. And I, have to, I know that they must have been infuriating to watch, but I was watching Zinchenko in the warm-up. And he stuck about four of those in the top corner uh, with Mm. real ease. So when he took those shots on from range, I wasn't quite as exasperated as some, but we didn't carve out any great goalscoring
1: opportunities. No, there was one, I think Trossard had a couple of shots. There was one that was saved and one that he curled. Yeah. Beyond the the top corner, probably could have done a little bit better with those. But I don't think we ever quite got the momentum to, you know, in games like this in the past. I remember, th- I remember, was it a game against Everton? It was a really snowy day at, at the Emirates. And maybe Thomas Rositsky scored a late goal or something like that. But it was one of those games where we were looking to come from behind. can't remember if we drew or won that game in the end, but we did score extremely late. But it right. came because we had... Basically all the pressure we played the game in their half consistently and it was just wearing them down, wearing them down, wearing them down, wearing them down. I don't think we ever quite got to that. And I do think Everton, you know, there was a bit of, um, gamesmanship involved, a bit of time wasting, um, forgot got booked, but it was about, what, 86 minutes, 87 minutes when he got booked They brought booked. Mopay on, which is they basically… They Mopay on, you know.
2: Yeah. Um, That's pressing the gamesmanship button, big style.
1: I mean, he is the most irritating man alive. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right now, I know there are others out there and, um, you know. He's been atrocious apparently as well this season, like an awful footballer. Um, but but comes on and just reveled in winding up the Arsenal players or trying to get involved in things to to slow the game down. Like there could have been four or five minutes of injury time in the six minutes of injury time because of everything that went on, because of all the, you know, the argy-bargy and, you know. But it just slows momentum, doesn't it? Exactly. We saw Spurs doing it against Man City
2: yesterday. This is what teams do when they're in front. Mm. Arsenal have been on the right side of that plenty of times this season. Um, I mean, I think Mope
1: should have been sent off.
2: Do you? Yeah. Well, I, I grabbed- was just relieved Zinchenko didn't get sent off. I yeah. know that he, it wouldn't have been necessarily fair, but that would have been such a... Yeah, that would have would been it would have real- compounded the defeat.
1: You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Given the initial reaction I, I saw with Mope lying on the ground and he was laughing, I was thinking, oh, he's wound him up to the point where... You know, he's lamped him or something, you know. Yeah, but same. but he actually grabs Inchenko by the head and pulls him down, you know, and, and falls over himself. It's like a wrestling move. Fucking annoying little prick. Um, but look, yeah, the moment didn't come. The goal didn't come. We couldn't break Everton down. And it's our, our first defeat since losing to Manchester United back in September. So... In the league. In the league, yes. Sorry. Yes. So, I mean, how do you contextualize that? You know, in your own mind, what we've got to play for this season is so big. I think everything that doesn't go our way feels seismic, right? Which I completely understand because we've got such a lot to play for. But I think stepping back a little bit and accepting that there are going to be days where you don't play well, and there are going to be days when you don't play well and, and you get away with it, where you can get away with, you know, a win or, or you can get away with a point. There are going to be days when you don't play well and you, you lose a game and that happens. And that happens in football and that happens to pretty much every team. So I think I'm like with my glass half full, I'm sort of like, okay, this is not a bad time to remember that if you let standards slip in terms of your performance, then every team in this league is capable of punishing you and taking points off you. Um, Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say I would choose to lose a game right now just to learn a lesson. Of course not. But I do think there are moments when they happen in the season. It's how you react to them, right? It's how you, it's how you respond and how quickly you respond. That really uh, demonstrates where you are as, as a team.
2: I think that's absolutely right. The significance of this result will be determined by the response. Mm. And I have never envisaged a timeline where Arsenal's progress to the Premier League title is serene. I think it's been relatively serene until this point, but I've always envisaged it being the case that points are going to be dropped mm. between now and May. And the thing that gives me some comfort there, and what we saw play out this weekend, is that points will be dropped probably by all teams mm-hmm. involved. Um, that is the nature of the Premier League. You know, every game can be a challenge. And I think it's definitely disappointing because when you look at our fixture list, okay, a couple of games against Everton, bottom of the league, you know, yeah. not going great. You would have looked at those and thought, ah, Six, hopefully six there. Yeah. And, you know, there are tougher away games to come and we've sort of lost a little bit of a cushion there. There's no getting away from that. As much as it's a relief that City lost two, these were still points that Arsenal should have taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and the margins in the game, I know that we're sort of very disappointed, but the margins of the game are so fine. I mean, it's if that Bakayev-Saka shot isn't cleared off the line, Arsenal probably win this match. Um, mm. it's that simple. And, you know, that we've had games like this. I'm thinking of Ellen Road where our performance, I don't think was much better to be honest. And yet we came away with three points because the margins went in our favor, but I guess law of averages, sometimes they're not going to, and this yeah. is one of those times. Um, but yeah, I, I think I know what you mean about the timing. I think it's a good opportunity to refocus because, and and in some ways i do wonder if focus was a bit of an issue because i think the manchester city games obviously we played them in the cup last week and we've got the league game against them just you know 10 days or so away now at this point yeah. in time i think they are looming very very large in our collective consciousness and i mean that not just as fans but i think staff players everyone is aware of this huge game against man city coming up in 10 days' time. And I don't know, of course, it's impossible to say whether that meant the eye came off the ball a little bit at Goodison Park, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was an element. But we can't do that. We have to treat every single game as critical, because otherwise you lose in this
1: league. Of course. And look, we can't talk about how Mikel Arteta has been banging the one-game-at-a-time drum to his players and give them credit for that. And then, you know, I I don't know that there would have been any, anything other than the Everton game in the preparation for this one. Um, You know, it it, it can just happen that you have an off day. That's true. You know? Um, So, and I think we did have an off day. I think um, across the board, you know, on the pitch and off the pitch, maybe we didn't do enough to win this game. and, And that's what happens. And you've got to, you know, put it in a box, move on, and make sure that you make up for it, particularly when you're given a get-out-of-jail-free card of the kind that we got yesterday with, with, with Manchester City losing as well. What did you I make mean, of... The players sorry.
2: will be really buoyed, I imagine, by the City result. I mean, the, the change in the mood for them coming all back into training on Monday morning from yeah. what might be expected is going to be massive. And it'll be needed because the next game is Brentford and, yeah. and they're in a terrific
1: run themselves. What do you make of Miguel Arteta's comments? You know, he said, uh, and I think this this is obviously very deliberate, he said, I want the team to know how much I love them. I love them much more now than three hours ago, a week ago, a month ago, three months ago. It's easy to be next to the players when they're winning and they're performing. This is a moment I love my players more, the staff more, and now we stick together. This journey is going to be difficult and challenging. There's going to be bigger stones in the middle that we're going to have to overcome, and now we're going to prepare well in the week for Saturday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I'm not at all surprised that he... He did that and said that because, you know, what they have done in the Premier League to this point really has been um, incredible. You know, it's the best points tally we've had after 19 games in our history. So to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater after a disappointing result wouldn't make any sense. I think what he wants them to do is, you know, feel the appreciation, but also understand that you know this is what happens um if you don't play to your best if i don't you know make maybe the right decisions you know i don't think he's excluding himself from it as well um but i think that message of support is part of you know how he keeps people on board and and how he's been able to get us to this point anyway
2: yeah I, I know people get weary of the comparison. I thought it was quite uh, Guardiola in some respects. It felt like it was a little bit of a line out of his playbook, the kind of thing he would say mm. in that circumstance. I think it was interesting that he was much more critical of his team after a far better performance against City in the Cup a week before. Mm. Um, he seemed genuinely quite irritated and vexed with them after that match. And here, yeah, it he was real arm round with the shoulder. I love my team stuff. I think it's the right thing to do. This is the time to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, not lose our heads. Remember that the the quality of our football has taken us to this point. And if we play our game, we're going to have superior results to that. So
3: Mm.
2: yeah, it's, it's, it's disappointing, but it can happen in this league. Um, And we're not here to be the invincibles. We're here to win the title and I suspect whoever wins the league in May will lose at least another game or two between now and the end of the season. Mm. It's all about how you compartmentalize that, how you learn from it, how you move on
1: from it and how you bounce back. I could not agree more. And let's hope we can uh, see that coming up this weekend against Brentford. Right. Uh, Unless there's anything else you want to discuss in part one, we should probably take a little break and do some questions. Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. We'll be right back with your questions and more in part two, right after this.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe,
0: ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer your questions that you send. Which is obvious because they're your questions. But you send them to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at RSBlog and also on the Rsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an RSBlog member on Patreon. James, be my guest.
3: Oh.
2: Thank you very much. No problem. Um anyways, I am your guest, Andrew. Every week. Co-host, not guest. Oh, you're too kind. Um okay, what about this? True story, who's at true story underscore number four, says Top of the morning, gents. Uh, I didn't do the accent. After the weekend's <laughs> results...
1: They're after th- me, lucky champs.
2: <laughs> after the weekend's results, do you think the title race is now between three
1: teams? Again. Um, boom, boom, boom. I have to look at the table. Um, Eight points. I mean, you can't rule Manchester United out. They keep winning football matches. It's very annoying. It is quite annoying. Um... Fortunately,
2: Casemiro got himself sent off, and that tends to be quite important to them, whether or not he
1: plays. So. Yeah, that's true. But, yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at the table and and say, yeah, it is three teams. We're obviously focused on Manchester City because they're the closest and, you know, consistently they've been the team that's winning the title. Um, for some reason, I don't know how they've been able to finance this or provide yeah, the resources. No. I, you know,
2: Amazing achievement. Yeah, 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 yeah. What the owners have done there is actually really impressive.
1: Yeah, maybe there should be some investigation. I don't know, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think it is. In any normal season, if there was, you know, um, if the, this was the lay of the land in the Premier League, you, you can't rule out any team going on a bit of a run and and winning games and putting themselves in, in the picture, you know? So I'm just sort of glad we don't have to play them again. Um,
2: no, I'm looking at United's games. I mean, they still have to go to Newcastle. They have to go to Spurs. They have to go to Liverpool, who used to be good. So their their games aren't easy. Mm. Um, I guess they're in it. I guess they're in it. But, you know, I feel like, what is it, an eight-point gap with a game in hand in Arsenal's favour, which is at home to Everton in theory, I think, that game in hand. I think Arsenal should feel very confident they can finish ahead
1: of Manchester United. They should, but, you know, be alert. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Don't take anything for granted, and don't sort of look down the table and think a team is irrelevant. Um, you know, no. still in
2: some ways, what we need is for the likes of Newcastle and maybe even Spurs to sort of keep the pace on Manchester United and suck them into a a, a real top four scrabble. You exactly, know what
1: I mean? exactly.
2: Because that's what's of critical importance to them. I think getting back into the
1: Champions League. I think that's true. I think that's true. Okay. Um, We had questions about Ben White. So let me just see if I can find these. Uh, Gunnar Works on the Discord said, Tommy Asu has looked the better of our two right backs in the last couple of games. The team selection is truly based on merit. Is it time for him to get a run of games or are there other reasons that Benjamin White should stay in the squad? And um, uh, there was another one as well, but we had a, a load of questions basically about Ben White and, you know, whether he could benefit perhaps from coming out of the firing line a little bit because it does look as if his form has fluctuated a little in the last few weeks.
2: I agree with that. Um, I wonder if he might be feeling a it a bit physically as well. You know, there was one point in the second half where uh, Dwight McNeil raced past him and mm. Dwight McNeil doesn't race past many. So I, I completely understand it. And as I said in part one, I would have taken him off probably around the hour mark. Um, there was obviously the, was it the United game where he came off at half time mm. on, on a booking. So yeah, I, I think in the last couple of matches, he hasn't looked at his usual level. The problem is, the quandary I have is if you change it now, Let's say you change it for Brentford. Where does that leave you for Man City?
1: I, th- you know, my feeling was that he was always going to make a few changes for Brentford anyway. Because with, Man- cause
2: it's three games in a
1: week. Because it's three games in a week. And, and I think that's part of what we've got to be able to do as a, as a team. Because the mm-hmm. consistency of selection is fantastic. And it can be beneficial. But I think what we've got to be able to do as a team is shift a few of these parts around with confidence that the players who are coming in can do a good job. If Tommy Asu plays against Brentford and plays really well, well, maybe he just keeps his place for the Man City game. You know, this is kind of how it works, right? That um, if the manager is confident, I mean, Tommy Asu was the first choice last season. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of changes against Brentford. For example, Trossard might start ahead of Martinelli. Um, I don't know if we would see a Jorginho start ahead of Thomas Partey, depending on how or to what extent he might be feeling that injury, which I I do think is a a factor in why he came off against Everton.
2: Well, I mean, have you ever hurt your ribs?
1: Yes, I I broke... uh, I broke two ribs playing football and it took a long time yeah. to heal. Like to the point, like genuinely I couldn't laugh or sneeze for about two weeks uh, without it really, really hurting. And you're just sort of chewing ibuprofen for, for a long time. What was really interesting about it was I, I felt like it was taking ages and only getting incrementally better. mm. It um, does
2: take a long time to heal, and there's not and then, really.
1: And then, yeah, it was just like one day, it was like, oh, it's fine now.
2: Um, that's interesting,
1: but Even maybe bruised ribs.
2: I think are pretty painful. Mm. I once uh, in a bar in Edinburgh, um, <laughs> where I was drunk, and I, I I was letting people punch me in the stomach. I think like
1: <gasps> all right, Houdini, fucks. yeah, sake.
2: exactly. <laughs> uh, really, I, I, yeah. I mean, I deserved everything I got. And uh, I let a few people do it and I was like, ha ha, I am fine, I am invincible. And then somebody punched me um, and caught me in the ribs. And yeah, for about six months, I would sort of occasionally have pain or if I laughed or if I was breathing heavily. Mm. And I'm not even sure, I never went for a scan or anything because there's very little they can do if you break a rib anyway. But um, I don't know if they were fractured or or bruised or whatever, but Mm. it is an injury that I think I could see it impacting performance for sure. Like I know we were all relieved it wasn't his hamstring, but yeah. in some ways, at least there's kind of a fixed timeline with that. I think ribs are much more mm. unpredictable. They um, are. I felt
1: I felt mine break. <laughs> yeah. well, basically a guy um, sort of ended, you know, uh, it was sort of a clash for the ball and he ended up going in sort of underneath my uh, right arm, which was, up in the air kind of to balance myself. It was in a natural position, I should, you know, I should say. But he just came in and with his shoulder, he just bang, and I could, it just went, Bow. it was like, ah, oh, fuck, that's sore. So, um, wow. yeah. Well,
2: yeah, so he, he might be a candidate. I mean, I think he's so important to – uh to, to what Arsenal do. that I, I think the likelihood is maybe him starting the game and coming off early a bit like we saw at Goodison Park. Um, mm. But yeah, I agree that there probably will be a couple of changes for Brentford. But I just think when it comes to City, I almost think it's the culmination of everything we've done this season. I think my gut says Arteta will pick the team against City mm. if he can with Gabriel Jesus up front as well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I see he's doing some running again, so that's good. He's making progress. Yeah. I think he's still some distance away from being fit, but uh, making progress which is Imagine
2: which is good. how great it's gonna be if we get him back like before the end of the season. I mean I watched a, a compilation the other day of his you know season so far and I do think we forget
1: sometimes oh. quite how good he was. He was brilliant. You know, he really was. Um, And I think Eddie, you know, as we keep saying, has done a a sterling job to try and fill in. But they are different kinds of players as well. They give you different kinds of things, and we're missing the things that Gabriel Jesus has has given us.
2: Mm. And also just having another one. Having another stuff would
1: be helpful. It would.
2: Um, Well, listen, we talked about Trossard potentially coming in. Mitch says, When should we start to be getting concerned by Martinelli's performances? He's been nowhere near his best for the last three to four games. Looks quite tired for someone who's highly energetic and gets at fullbacks all day. And then finishes with, does Trossard start versus Brentford?
1: Yeah, we had another question on this as well from PJ who said, um, I'm sure you've seen the position graph with Martinelli very isolated out wide. What do you guys make of it? Tactical to isolate him against the right back or problematic because he has more defensive work, etc.? Many people calling for Trossard to get the nod over him next week. It's a lot to consider as I'm not sure it's as straightforward a conundrum as it might appear. Did you see this graphic?
2: I've not seen the graphic. Okay, um, hang on, let me see it, if I can. send it I don't think it, it will
1: surprise you. me,
2: given my uh, my view of the pitch. On uh,
1: yeah, let me see if I can send it to. I'll put it in the little chat bit here. I wonder does will that open up for you?
2: My stomach just made an absolutely extraordinary noise, by the way. Which was that a, okay? I might wish to take out. If not, I'll I didn't really you. hear it. So, well, go back and listen, guys. <laughs> it was. It, I don't know what's happening in there. Okay. I, I'm clicking on this image now.
1: Right. Oh,
2: well, weirdly, that link doesn't really work. Hang on, let me try this. Is
1: it just, did it download?
2: Oh, it, it downloads. Me? Oh, yeah. fancy. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me in the least. Saka and Martinelli pinned uh, to that flag. It was curious because, as I said in part one, Martinelli was like on his own out there, and it looked so clearly to be the out
1: ball for Arsenal. Why do you think, think we didn't take it? Because I remember I a few times and it was actually Zinchenko who had the ball in midfield. And I'm thinking, right, you've got the ability and the vision to make that pass to to Martinelli. Like I think what Everton did and what other teams have done this season, because we had a question about like, you know, how do we cope with, how do we cope with teams uh, doubling up on our wide men? now. But I think mm. teams have been doing this quite a lot this season, and we've usually found a way around it. But there were a few times where I thought, just get that ball out quickly to Martinelli, because yeah. Everton then have got to shift over, and I don't quite know why Zinchenko didn't make that pass. And there were two or three moments where I thought, oh, that's odd. That's odd that they're not moving at that side. Um, I agree.
2: We fell, we, we were a very right-sided emphasis, particularly in the first half. And yeah, it was odd. Because actually, you know, there were times last season when it felt like everything went down the right. Partey, Odegaard, Saka. But we've been much more balanced mm. this season. And and Martinelli did seem to be in acres of space. I think the doubling up thing, I, I'm not sure. it's. I think the reason wingers are doubled up on is because you've been too slow to get to ball, the ball to them. And they're able to flood men back and have that two-on-one if you get the ball to them early enough, then you're 1v1 mm. most of the time. And I honestly think that was the issue with Arsenal at Goodison Park, is that it, those transitions from side to side of the pitch were just taking too long. Um, I'm not a coach. I'm not a you know a tactics expert, but that's what it looked like to me. Um, and Martinelli's individual game, I mean, I think Coleman will come away pretty pleased with how he copes with... Martinelli and yeah. uh, I think one on one, he's a pretty decent defender. But given his age and given Martinelli's speed and pace, he probably would have wanted to exploit that a bit more. Yeah, I think maybe he's a he's a hair off what we would hope for. But I still think his uh, his decline is a bit exaggerated uh, on social media, at least. Yeah, I, think I mean, that I think he's
1: it's still a, a threat. It's a fluctuation in form. Um, I, yeah. I noticed somebody saying. Something about, like, does playing with Zinchenko rather than Tierney not suit him? So I went back to look and, and see the goals that he scored, the games in which he scored, I should say, who was playing at left back. And um, there's no pattern, really. Zinchenko played some of them, Tierney played some of them, and Tommy Asu played in a couple of them as well. I think this thing of well, him being you know? isolated is also something we, we kind of
2: always do. Like, when it works, we don't really talk about it in those terms. But he does spend a lot of time providing the width on that flank. Um, mm. I just think we function better as a team and it's it's less of an issue. It's, I, I, mean, I don't think Zinchenko is the problem. I think he's much more hurt, and it's not an original point, by the absence of Jesus, who with whom he had a brilliant understanding and who would sort of link up with him on that left flank a lot more regularly than Nketiah does.
1: Sure. I mean, you mentioned something in... The first half about Granite Shaka, mm-hmm. and I think Granite Xhaka if you want to talk about the 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 lack of support from a fullback it's Shaka's role to give Martinelli support on that side and we've seen it time and again right mm-hmm. um we did have a question from uh a sheep eco um he's got some like dollar symbols and euro symbols in the okay. uh, in the name, so I don't know how to pronounce them. I don't want to say like a dollar hip, anyway. He says, who's the understudy to granite Xhaka? What's the plan with that position? It seems to be that there's not much besides hoping Xhaka is always fit and in form. If we'd had someone to sub Xhaka and put in the legs in that position, we might have created more uh, or scored in the Everton game. I do think that's an interesting one um, to consider, isn't it? Because... Xhaka has done very well this season, but like everybody, there are going to be games where it doesn't quite work for him, and there isn't a a like for like change, if you like, in the in the squad, unless you do something like move Odegaard over or even play Fabio Vieira in there. Well, that would
2: maybe be my suggestion. You know, a Fabio Vieira even in Emil Smith-Rowe. Well, that's, I mean, um, I was
1: I was talking more about who was available to the manager on on Saturday. Yeah, I, I do have an inkling that that is where they they see not Emile Smith-Rowe's complete future, but I think they probably see him as an option there.
2: Yeah, I suspect so, especially with Trossard's arrival on that left wing, you know, feels like they'll share that for the next couple of seasons at least. Mm. Um I, in this game, probably would have brought Vieira on for Shaka rather than Odegaard. Um, I think it might have given Arsenal a bit more creativity and unpredictability on the ball and, you know, in attack. Uh, We haven't seen a ton of Vieira Mm. in that position. Um, Came on there, was it against Wolves that he came on there?
1: Maybe. that? That was the one game this season I didn't see, so.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Wolves won us. Ars- no, Wolves nil Arsenal. Won- the two-nil nope.
1: two nil game, no? Yeah,
2: it? yeah, yeah it was The it was w- game just before the Christmas break. Yes, Martin Odegaard scored twice. I am just looking at the lineups now. Yes, Granit Xhaka went off very early on. He he was ill, was- wasn't he? He had a bad tummy, and Vieira came on and played as that left eight, and actually did pretty well. Created one of the goals for Odegaard, right? Uh, with that nice dying run and a little clipped cross into the box. So. Uh, that would be my suggestion, but you know mm. we know that Arteta is like Unai Emery and Arsene Wenger in that if Granit Xhaka is fit, he plays. Um, I'm very curious to see if Smith Rowe, when he's available, when he's fit, gets a chance there. I, I know that we've seen moments of it before, and it's you know it's not always delivered quite as we might have hoped, but. Uh, He has to learn the role. He has to learn the position. Mm. I think he does appear to have a lot of the tools to make it happen.
1: For sure, for
2: sure. Um, Should I have another question?
1: Why not? That's how this works. (laughs) Very much how this works. Um, You should know this by now. This is episode five (laughs) hundred (laughs) and ten.
2: Okay. What about this? This is sort of looking back at the window. A couple of Arsons says, contrary to popular perception on Twitter. Will Arsenal, having shown they are in the market to go big but have a definite price cut-off point, gain respect in the summer transfer market? To me, it says we're serious but will not stand for being ripped off. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, there is a limit to what you're going to pay for a player based on you know, your own resources and your own valuation of a player. I don't know if it'll gain respect. Like, I don't think other football clubs will be going, look at look at the way Arsenal didn't pay 80 million for Moises Caicedo. They're, they're a force to be reckoned with in the transfer market. I don't know that that's how it's going to work. Mm. I think we have, I think we've got a little bit to prove in the transfer market this summer. And I know we've just come out of the January window and there are going to be people who are tired of transfer talk because it's it's kind of irrelevant now. But I do think maybe we, we have something to prove when it comes to getting a really big deal done.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the Declan Rice thing is out in the open. Everybody knows that's a player we would like to bring in, but what competition are we going to face for that? How far will we push it if we have strong competition for it, uh, or for him, I should say? Um, And I think that that's going to be an interesting part of of this summer, is can we get that big deal done? Because we've tried to do some big deals. Mudrick, we tried to do. Caicedo, we tried to do. Shao Felix, even if it wasn't... Necessarily a, a permanent transfer. It was still a big deal in terms of the stature of the player and the money involved. And I'm not saying we should have paid 21 million pounds for Zhao Felix for for four or five months, but we were interested. It wasn't just made up stuff. This was a player that we wanted, and you know we 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 can understand why some of those deals didn't happen because it's not like it's unfair or whatever that Chelsea have done, but Chelsea have sort of a, they don't give a fuck what they do or how much they spend. And that makes it complicated. So I have forgotten what the original question was.
2: Will it make Arsenal be taken seriously in the market that they kind of had a a
1: price point. They weren't willing to go. Maybe, maybe, but you know, every selling club is going to want the maximum for their player, particularly if it's a good player. And, you know, if you're a team that's gonna be in the Champions League next season and you've got that revenue and all of that kind of stuff, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a tough negotiation. But I don't I don't really I don't really think it'll make any big difference to clubs, you know. I, I think the Caicedo thing was more about Brighton not selling than us willing to push it further, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and also I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's sort of an honest or not honest, but a truly accurate kind of portrayal of what Arsenal did in this window. I mean, ultimately, Arsenal were willing to offer up to 100 million for Mikhailo Mudrik. And yes, it might not have been in terms that Shakhtar loved as much as Chelsea's, but it's not like Arsenal said, well, we value this player at 50 or 60 million and we draw a line there. Yeah, You know, they did get dragged into a bidding war, effectively. Um, and and in the case of Caicedo, you know, they they did go in at a very high price. It's not like they looked at him and thought, well, he's 21. He's played 26 Premier League games. Uh, we think he's worth 45. You don't like that, Brighton? Okay, we'll move mm. on. You know, they sort of moved to sort of as if they were going to really, really push Brighton on it. So I don't think it's entirely accurate to say Arsenal sort of showed they wouldn't be bullied on prices. Um, It's not like Man City, for example, and their superb conduct, which can't be questioned in any way. Um, But it's not like they did with Kukurea, where they sort of, I think I'm paraphrasing figures here, but I think they bid like 45 or something and brighton said no and then they they said well there's just no way we're paying more than that good luck and chelsea obviously came in with something ludicrous like 67 um Mm. so i I, yeah i don't think arsenal have really like set out a clear position on this and i sort of am inclined to agree with you that in football what gets you
3: respect
2: (laughs) often isn't um being sensible, but being ambitious. Uh, And that may be a bad thing, but I think that is the way Mm. football tends to operate. And I think there is... I, I have two thoughts. One is that I think Arsenal have gone for a number of big ticket players, you know, players with price tags in excess of 60 million or whatever it might be, and it's not quite come off. And I think that closing that sort of deal is something that this administration kind of still has to prove they can do Mm -hmm. and and I think there is probably a different strategy required with a deal of that nature and of that size and I think if you're willing to commit uh 70 million to a player but it me but doing committing 80 means doing the deal quicker and more expediently and without inviting other bidders, mm. then I think at that level, that's sort of something you have to accept. And maybe Arsenal are in the process of learning that. But the, the second point I would make, and the one that is slightly counter to it and contrary to it is, is that the right market for Arsenal to be shopping? You know, I'd still think, yes, Manchester City played, paid £100 million jack Grealish, but the vast majority of their signings have come in that sort of 40 to 60 mm. racket and i do think that once you get above 70 80 and you get into those kinds of numbers if you look at the list of signings in the premier league that have been made above that figure and arguably Grealish would be included on this it's just very difficult mm. to extract sufficient value, value. Yeah.
1: yeah i mean david Moyes was asked about declan rice over the weekend and he said you know it it, it would be a british transfer fee yeah. record something like that but you know this is a guy with 12 months left on his contract so i think
2: that might be slightly wishful thinking to be i honest. think
1: so yes but it will tell you that west ham are going to try and get every single penny that they can of from course. from uh, the sale the of declan have. rice yeah and and in in order to do that, they can't just sort of hammer one interested party. There needs to be maybe two or three interested parties who will play off each other, and that then creates the, the bidding war, if you like, and that's what mm-hmm. raises prices. So, um, yeah, best of luck.
2: It, I, I mean, one thing I would say is as much as shopping in that bracket makes me a bit nervous – I think if you're going to spend that on a player, spending one who's already kind of a proven commodity in the Premier League Mm. probably makes more sense.
1: Yeah, that's fair. He was very good, wasn't he, against Newcastle? He was brilliant, yeah. Very, very good. He
2: he could stop doing that now until the end of the season. Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) Just phone it in from now on. I don't want any scouts. I don't want any managers watching him and thinking he looks good quite like the look of
1: this uh, nice guy Hmm.
2: no no take it easy mate you'll stay up there's some crap teams in this except for for when you're
1: playing manchester city and manchester united do really well against them yeah do
2: really well against them
1: yeah let me ask you this one um it comes from t-dog i was gonna call him T dog Hmm. but it's t-dog and he says Zinchenko has been absolutely fired up in our last two games and I love it but are you concerned he might cross a line and cost us do you think Mikel Arteta could or would focus more on man management in the second half of the season given that tactics are are very clearly established already so
2: yeah i didn't see it myself but sam dean told me that arteta was over to zinchenko pretty quickly at full time and uh yeah there's
1: some pictures of of arteta um
0: yeah, he, got, he got him right off that away.
2: pitch yeah. I mean it, it is twice in two games that he has been uh, very wound up at full time mm. and there are sort of mitigating circumstances in both one is obviously against his former teammates and it's sl- a slightly odd dynamic there seemingly uh, the other is Neil uh, Mope. Neil Mope. Yeah. which I think you can just forgive anyone's it, conduct it, when they're up against him exactly, um, exactly. I, 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 it's you know I'm surprised he didn't go full Casemiro uh, <laughs> try and strangle the man. But, um, I, yeah, I, I'm a little bit worried about the hot-headedness, but it's one of those things where when we win, we're praising his passion and his commitment and, you know, how he's a leader and all these things. So to a certain extent, you've got to take the rough with the smooth there. Mm. I think I'd rather someone had that fire than didn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's anything to be massively concerned about.
2: I worry honest. about him against City. I, I'll be I'll be up front about that. I think he's going to be really hyped. Super fired up for this one. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, because he didn't start, did he, the cup game? And he came on and he was absolutely, mm. um, you know, wired. And I think knowing the stakes and knowing the opposition – I think someone's going to have to, you know, keep mm. an eye on him. Someone's yeah. going to have to do the the Gary Lineker point to the manager yeah, if, that, if he what, thinks his head's going to go. <laughs> what worries me is the pl- closest player on the pitch to him are Gabriel and Granite Xhaka. And I'm not sure I fully trust them <laughs> to hey, listen, keep their heads either. As
1: You know, I, I wrote something on the blog on Sunday, um, which I don't think I've ever written before in, in the... Six or seven years that Granit Xhaka has been here. Is it a, Granit Xhaka came over and helped calm things down?
2: Yeah, <laughs> it was. When, I think it was. I when- mean, genuinely, we. I think we have to hope that he is the change man. He appears to be because I think mm. as he as a younger man, Zinchenko um, is going to be really, really up for that game. And yeah. if it starts going against him, I don't know how he'll react to that. Yeah um i've sort of well i had other questions but they were about things like set pieces and we've sort of
1: covered them in part one so that's true i've got a couple i think we can just close out with one comes from carl who's at jj jojo shabadoo on twitter Joey Jojo Shavadou, very famous man. He says, looking at the bottom four, we really struggled against three of them away and the win against Leeds needed a bit of luck. He says a lot of luck, but did it need a lot? Was it a lot? I can't remember at this point whether well, it was a, a lot.
2: It a of business with the penalty at the end. Well,
1: that wasn't luck. I mean, that was the you know the, the quality officials that we have doing the, doing the <laughs> right thing. He said, should we be concerned or is it the fact that in the Premier League there are no easy games, especially uh, when you're facing a team that's fighting relegation?
2: I think... As much as it's a cliche, I think that is true and it becomes even more true in the second half of the season. I think I'm right in saying Man City ostensibly have to play all of the bottom three uh, between now and the end of the season and you think, well, that'll be easy. But I think the closer you get to May, the harder those games can Mm. become. Sometimes those teams get new managers. Um, It wouldn't blow my mind if that happened at Southampton quite soon, Mm. who are rock bottom at the moment, but the press conference their manager gave... Um, I think if I was an owner of a club would not necessarily have filled me with confidence. <laughs>
1: he's a strange guy. Is that fair guy? to say? Did you see it? I didn't see it, but I've I've seen a couple of his... He's a strange guy, isn't he?
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, the situation there I think is that he's always been a back five manager and there was the, the, the pundits and the fans have been calling for a back four and he trade his principles and went for the back four and it, it hasn't worked out for him right um so now he's sort of saying you know i've let myself down i should i've betrayed my ideas um right but you know he's in the washing machine as as clive would put it <laughs> um so yeah I, I think the bottom three i mean i think you've got to bear in mind away as well like the way those teams could sometimes play against you. I mean, Everton came with a very, very, very clear game plan.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, and it was very much focused on making life difficult for Arsenal. Mm. And I think the reality of this league is that that's not how most teams approach it. You know, if you look above the relegation zone, uh, you've got Leeds, West Ham, Wolves, Leicester. Now, all these teams, Palace, Villa... That's like, and, and Forrest, that's the bottom half of the league. But most of those teams have coaches who have styles and philosophies and, the, you know, an imprint they want to place on the game. And not many are prepared to be quite as pragmatic as Dyches. Um, so I think I think it's not a huge area of concern. I think when a team sets up specifically to stop you, it makes life really hard. But mm. I actually don't think that many teams in this league do that.
1: Mm.
2: I think they've got ideas above that.
1: Fortunately, what do you think? I think that's probably true. Circumstance really played a part in the way that Everton uh, approached yeah. approached this one, um, and you know what you're going to get against the Sean Dyche team. And there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about like how Everton stopped Arsenal, and there's some truth to it. But I do think Arsenal were culpable of stopping Arsenal as well
3: yeah of
2: course
1: you know I think the the things that we didn't do that we're capable of doing and have done for most of the season we didn't do and that you know played its uh, played its yeah. part in that I so, think
2: they they didn't make it easy for us but I think at times we made it hard for ourselves that is that is
1: kind of what I was uh, getting around to um did you watch the Fulham game fulham chelsea on on friday no, night
2: I, I really enjoyed that result though i have to say
1: yeah um, um we had a question though about uh, there was i was in the pub watching it well i wasn't watching it i was sitting at a bar and it was kind of on in the background sure. and stuff like that but i saw that they had Howard webb on and Zach Taze said, I'm not the biggest fan of Howard Webb, but I thought he talked well and indicated a desire to provide accountability and transparency to aspects of the PGMOL, hopefully not just lip service. So I didn't know if you'd seen that or not, and had any opinion on no, what Howard Webb said. Uh, when did he take up his position, Howard Webb? I don't know exactly. I think he was supposed to be... It was supposed to be an end of the season thing. Isn't Mike Riley still there until the end of the season? But but Howard Webb has come in now. and Chief refereeing gonna... officer. He, will,
2: he was announced in August 22. Uh, let's have a look.
1: I mean, just on... I think it's the end of the season, but I'm not sure. Yeah, but just on that, like, I mean, what do you think of the head of the referees going on Sky Sports standing around at a game, having the chats with with Neville and Carraher and, and, um, you know, the presenter and and everything else. I mean, is that something we should be open to? Or do you – I mean, my my gut feeling seeing him on the screen was like, ah, this guy. I just felt it looked like he was fame-hungry to an extent like of course he's going to be on tv he's he's Howard Webb he's been out of the limelight and you know I could be doing the man a great disservice because I didn't hear a thing that he said but that was my first instinct maybe that's just me being massively cynical
2: well I think there's always been this attitude that kind of we want the referees to be sort of faceless in some ways you know that they're not Mm. the stars of the game and in some respects, the less we hear from them, the better. I think the counter to that is that you look at some sports and referees will come out afterwards and explain decisions they made um, and it can, you know, assuage some doubts or concerns that might yeah. be there. I think it I, – I, my big thing is I think it would be really interesting to hear the logic for decisions in-game. You know, I, I'd be fascinated, for example, if things like the VAR dialogue were – Oh, Yeah. Uh, available to the public.
1: Like we didn't get to hear, uh, I'd love to have heard what they were saying about the incident with with Gabrielle in the second half. We didn't mention that and and probably should have and the weird thing is I've got like a a three second replay of it that I've watched loads of times and I think it's quite probably a penalty but Mm. without greater context, without more TV footage and without hearing what they're saying in the VAR booth, I mean, I don't know why that couldn't be broadcast.
2: Yeah, we just get a check complete, don't we? Yeah. Um, So I think I'd be in favour of that. I think it's good to have a spokesman for the FA, uh, for the referees, rather, PGMOL. So, and, and, you know, if if Webb is going to be in this role as chief refereeing officer, it makes sense for him to do it. So I'm not not against it. Um, I think accountability is generally a good thing, but... I think where it gets complicated is to what extent do you wish to foreground the individual referees themselves? Yeah. I think that's where it gets a little bit tricky.
1: Okay. Um, very final one from Um He says, what sort of articles could James write which would elicit from Mikel Arteta the same response as James Pierce got <laughs> from Jurgen Klopp? And would James sing him a song to make it all right again? <laughs> yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. Klopp and James Pierce. I don't know what James Pierce wrote. I'm not sure anyone does.
2: (laughs) Because I've asked around, obviously. Um, And there have been a few things that have been a bit critical, I think, of the manager, uh, which he may have taken against. But it's not like there's a a clear smoking gun. Hmm. It's a curious one. I don't think it's a good look for a manager, I have to say. I think... They're absolutely entitled to give a bit back, but I don't think Klopp came across particularly well in that. And, and, and I am a fan of Klopp. I actually like Klopp. I think he seems like a really reasonable guy. Um, but I think it's a sort of dangerous game to mm. be like, I will take questions from these journalists,
1: but I won't from these I mean, I Ferguson know. did it all the time. He just banned oh, yeah. them. You know, he just got rid of them. You're not allowed to come to my press conference anymore, uh, which That's I think true. is probably the better way of doing it, rather than sort of rebuking a guy publicly. Like, you know, uh, if I, th- I can understand why, at a time when things are not going well at Liverpool, there might be a, an increased sensitivity on the of part course. of Jurgen Klopp to any criticism. You know, particularly if I don't know if it was an opinion piece, right? And he mm-hmm. says some things or makes some suggestions that are wide of the mark or aren't accurate or, or whatever it might be. But it did seem very odd to to react the way he did. Yeah, I think it, to
2: be honest, is much more about what's happening at Liverpool at the moment, isn't it? And, mm. and Klopp's own uh, struggle to kind of get his team going again. Yeah. And people in Germany have been saying, well, we've seen all this before, you know this is how what he was like at Dortmund when the wheels started to come off a little bit there. Um, and I, I, I completely forgive that. I mean, you know, it's a very stressful job and a stressful situation and being confronted with your critics face to face. Can't be a pleasant experience. Um, can I imagine Arteta doing that to me? Absolutely. <laughs> if I said the wrong thing, yeah, I can imagine it. I mean, he seems like quite a prickly character, Arteta. I could, but what I would say is he doesn't seem like someone who's hugely um, aware of or across his own coverage. Would be my guess. Um, mm. I, I don't. I think his focus is quite uh, narrow and quite internal. Um, I think he's. I think he. think he's aware of the media as an aspect of the job but i'm
1: not sure Mm. he's hugely across it
2: that's my that's my impression
1: yeah i mean there was a question in his pre-everton press conference um and it was i can't remember exactly what it was but basically it was put to him like Given the fact that you've strengthened in January, are there now no excuses? Yeah, I was for there, Ars- yeah. yeah for Arsenal to win the league, and I was like, okay, well, I know who's asked that question, and he has a track record of asking <laughs> the, the sort of questions that would make anybody just hang their head a little bit. But he just sort of laughed it off, didn't he? You know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I get that it must be wearisome to have stuff like that asked of you um, mm. probably most weeks. Um, I mean, the truth is Arteta would never lose it with me because, uh, as everyone knows, I am a part of the Arteta PR brigade and uh, he pays me to uh, oh, say yes. nice things about him.
1: Of course, of yeah. course. Part of the contract.
2: It's part of the deal. It's part of my deal uh, with Stan and with Mikel uh, that I have to only say nice things about them. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's on the record now. It is, That'll get yeah. clipped up by the aggregators
1: 100 uh, percent and i
2: think, <laughs> I, think yeah. I think uh it's, it's, it'd be interesting i'm not sure i mean he's quite grumpy with journalists all the time i would say McCall. like he is quite f- frosty i think he views it as a chore i do think he views it as something he has to do rather than something he enjoys whereas with Klopp, i think When he's having a good time, Mm. he seems to kind of revel in it and enjoy it more. So when it flips, it's kind of more palpable. Yeah, I think Mikael is very
1: consistent, but quite cold in his consistency. Yes, I think I think that's true, Um, and like I can completely understand it as well. I Um, respect that to be honest. Yeah, yeah, you know, every week. Look at look at those fucking guys. Yeah, every fucking week. Oh, it's him again. There's that question (laughs) again. Which is, you know, no slight on any of our uh, fantastic Arsenal uh, correspondents or anything like that. But yeah. I do think that's kind of how he looks at it. Um, he looks at it like
2: that, or he looks at it as an opportunity to control the message. Yeah. Mm. And and he does do that. I mean, you know, the stuff around injuries, for example, yeah. his attempts to kind of obfuscate, I think it's really, you know, I'm not sure. Like the party, I mean, maybe he's carrying injury. Maybe he's not, but we'd seen him in training via the training pitches. And he's sort of saying, well, he's Mm -hmm. a doubt. Um, Yeah. We can't quite take him at his word on on certain
1: things. certain things. All right. Well, look. Let's leave it there um, for today and let's get this out for people to listen to. As ever, thank you guys um, for being with us and thanks for subscribing and downloading and all the rest. Uh, We'll catch up during the week a little later on today. We will have an episode of The 30. Myself and Phil Costa looking back on all the action in the Premier League this weekend. Um, And there's uh, there's plenty going on, of course, uh, throughout the week. So uh, join us for that. For now, take it easy and we'll catch you on the next one.
2: Bye-bye.